Prior to coming to Waypoint Church, I was a youth pastor at a church in the Charlotte area, and my youth group wanted to make a difference in the world. And so through various activities that were going on and things that were happening in the news and things that they were learning through different music concerts or youth events or whatever, at that point in time, they were learning a lot about human trafficking and what it meant that people were being trafficked all over the world and what it looked like for someone to be entrapped in slavery. And at, at that point in time, there were 27 million human slaves on the earth. And so they were very impacted by that. And they wanted to make a difference. But when you see a, a number like 27 million, it's, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot because it's hard for us to get our mind. We just know that's a big number, but we don't know what that actually looks like. I mean, if I had 27 marbles, 27 million marbles right now, would they fill this room to the ceiling? Would they fill it this high? I mean, we don't know. It's difficult for us to conceptually understand that. And so I thought that maybe the best thing would be is that we pick one person who had been trafficked into slavery and that we work together to rescue one. Because when you have one person, you can see their face. You can know a little bit about their story. You can get a sense for that is someone that I'm connected to personally. And so what we did was we discovered how much money it would actually take to rescue one person out of trafficking and get them rehabilitated and get them back into life as normal. And we discovered it would about be about 7,500 U.S. dollars to do this. And so we began working toward that as a goal as a youth group through fundraisers. They had T-shirts developed. Sometimes you may see me wear a T-shirt around here. It has a big barcode on the front. That was our youth group's movement at that point. And so they worked together to raise $7,500 to rescue one person out of human trafficking and slavery. And that one person rescued, we made a difference in that one life. And we were able to sense that and feel that as a group of young people. To see that God had given us opportunity to rescue that one. And so as we look today and think about the hymn, Joy to the World, we have joy because we individually were rescued by Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he thought of me and you. And he came on a mission to break us out of our slavery to sin. And so as we think about joy and Christ bringing joy to the world, we think about this idea of us being rescued us being redeemed. And I believe that when we think about the concept of joy, and I appreciate Arthur's comments about sometimes it's through hardship that we understand joy the most, I recognize something that joy has to have something to build on. It has to have a foundation. And I believe that justification by faith alone in Christ alone is our foundation for joy. And so today we're going to be talking about this doctrine and con theological concept of justification by faith. And I know that sounds like a 
big, huge theological seminary phrase. But church, we need to know what this doctrine encompasses and why it's so important to the church. John Piper says, Nothing is more foundational for the joy of undeserving people than the cross of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the death of Jesus in our place, the only possible joy would be the joy of delusion. Jesus Christ came into this world as the divine Son of God in order to die for our sins and rescue us from the wrath of God, the burden of guilt, the condemnation of justice, the bondage of sin, the torments of hell, and the loss of everything that's good, especially our loss of our relationship with God. And this was the rescue mission of Jesus. Our problem is not merely our own corruption and sin, but more seriously, our problem is God's condemnation of sinners. So herein lies the problem. Corruption and sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. What then, it says, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, bo that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. For as it is written, and this is a quoting Isaiah, none is righteous, no, not one. There's not a single righteous person on the planet because of the corruption of sin prior to Christ's movement of rescue into this world. And so the consequence of this corruption and God's eternal wrath towards human sinners is eternal misery. Not eternal joy, but eternal misery. So eternal misery impacts current misery in our own lives unless there is hope and unless there is the provision of joy. And that's where we have to really camp out on that. Is this idea of joy is provided to us as a gift from Christ. So there's a human side to this. And especially is reflective to my own life. As I struggle with the idea and the concept of joy. I really like blues music. The blues have deep roots in American history, particularly African-American history. If you go on Spotify and search for blues, man, there's some good stuff on there. There's some good stuff. The blues originated in southern plantations in the 19th century and its inventors were slaves, ex-slaves, and the descendants of slaves. These were African-American sharecroppers who sang as they toiled in the cotton and vegetable fields. And they taught us something that we can definitely connect to and resonate with today. Is that in the toil and struggle and the sin and misery of the movement slavery in that day and among slaves even today the message is clear that the desire for rescue and salvation was deep in them 
which caused them to write these songs called the blues as they worked through and what that meant. And you know, much of that songwriting and poetry has impacted even history today. Even in the African-American church, if you listen to the music and choirs sing, it's powerful. We're going to hear a hymn later this month that even connects that further to us. Go tell it on the mountain. And so when we look at this and we think through that, we get, start getting a sense for how God used Africans to come here to teach us and to build us up in our understanding of how we struggle oftentimes in our pursuit of joy. And that blues music also impacted Appalachian music, where I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. Bluegrass music has got its roots founded in. And the banjo, by the way, one of my favorite instruments, is actually a West African instrument. So when you tie all this together and you listen to blues music, you listen to the struggle, it resonates deeply in my own heart. I like the blues. I sing the blues. And I have to work through a personal history of what the ancients called melancholy or the blues in my own life. Some of you know what this is like. You have family history and genetics that have cause you to struggle through things like depression, anxiety, and a lot of that is real. Some of it is clinical. And sometimes things in life bring us to those deep layers and pockets of struggle, hardship, and we toil as we work through those things. I personally do. My family has a long history of melancholy. And as we walk through the struggle of Lyme's disease, which racked our family for years, I personally found myself many times in a dark place, not understanding God, what God was doing, how God was at work. And then I found myself struggling to have joy. Can you relate? I think there's so many of us that can connect on that point. As we think through our own personal journeys and what it means and what it looks like to go through suffering and hardship and then on the other side of it, be sad. Or even question our faith. Or even wonder if God is real and what he's doing. And why? Those are real deep questions that are okay to ask. And it's okay for us to struggle. I did. And I do. And I will again. And so as we look at what God does through this, whether it's through hardships with our family, struggling through unanswered health dilemmas, walking through life with severe clinical depression and sadness sometimes becomes your common friend. You're not alone. And in history, we're not alone. 
Satan wants to isolate us in that and make us believe that we're alone in this fight for joy and that it is God who is against us. And that's a lie. He's been lying about that from the beginning. When he said in the garden, you can be like God. How can I stand up here and read the Bible with glasses and my back ache and I can't sleep at night and say I'm like God? But Satan wants me as a pastor to tell you that different message that I'm different than you. I'm actually closer to God and I don't struggle. And Satan wants you to stay blinded to that as the church and think that the pastors and the elders are more holy. Missionaries are actually the most holy. And that's not true because we're all human and we all walk through this together. And you know, even Jesus saw a link between his own suffering and joy. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So our Savior comes to rescue us from everything that destroys joy. And it's good to look at him as our daily reminder of our source of true joy and ask ourselves hard questions which are answered by God's word, not the world's words. And here in a second, we're going to look at a couple of passages to ask these questions. Number one, is there wrath and a curse still hanging over me? Well, Galatians, and you'll see this on the screen, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 answers, is there wrath and curse? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Secondly, is there condemnation against me in the courtroom of heaven? Well, Romans 8 answers that when it says that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn us? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. So then I might ask myself this question. Is there righteousness that is required that I cannot produce? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 21 answers that question by saying this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's Christ's righteousness applied to us. And this is the justification which we find. Am I cut off from eternal life? John 3, 16. For God did not sin... His son in the world, what, that's, uh, sorry, that's John 3, 16. We know this. I started reading it. We know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be condemned, but will have life eternal. Are we trapped in this dominion of sin in our lives? Am I so trapped in sin that it ruins my life? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There was an exchange made that Jesus did for me. Is there any hope that a sinner like me could spend eternity with God? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And when I challenge the lies of Satan and the questions which darken my own soul, 
with the scriptures, when I challenged them with the word of God, the very words of God speaking louder than the words of culture, speaking louder than the words in my own head, speaking louder than the cultural influences, then I find encouragement for life. It is through preaching the gospel to myself every day and rehearsing and remembering what Christ has done for me that I find encouragement in this struggle against joy. So justification by faith is first a legal justification before it is a moral justification. And I'll explain what that means. It's first legal in this. We have to first be legally absolved of all of our guilt and credited with a righteousness that we don't have before we're accepted before God. So we have to actually be declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven with God as the judge and us condemned by his law. But then in Christ, God declares us as just. So we're standing in the courtroom, there's a judge. We are guilty, but then he looks at us and he looks at Christ and Christ says, he's mine, I'll stand in front of him. So the judgment against us hits Christ and then we're declared righteous. We're declared legally absolved of all of our sin and condemnation because of Jesus Christ. That's our legal justification made clear in the courtroom of heaven by God's condemnation as the judge against Christ on our behalf. Now we're absolved of sin. Then we are morally justified. Based now on my legal status of standing righteous before God, I now am morally justified through Christ's perfectly obedient life. It wasn't just his death that was on my behalf. It was his life lived in perfect obedience to the law. See, this is where we need encouragement as believers. Because I cannot live a righteous life. I cannot live the upstanding level of the law. But Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience, lived it on my behalf. So my legal justification is made in the courtroom of heaven because of Christ's death on the cross. He took my death for me. But he also lived the perfect life of obedience that I could never live. And that's also credited to me. That's my moral righteousness. So when I stand before God, I'm legally justified and I'm morally justified. And that when, when God looks at me and as judge, he sees me as righteous. And that's a gift. And inside of that doctrine, we can find joy. And only there. And that's the final seal of our redemption. And it will produce what the Holy, Galatians says is the fruit of the Spirit, joy. So I fight for joy. Not by doing better or being better or trying to live a life that's better. But by becoming what my identity already is in Christ. I find joy when I become what I already am. So when we sang joy to the world this morning, we sing the, the hymn of Isaac Watts. God used a very sick, very depressed man to fill the Christian world with unforgettable hymns flowing from his blue, melancholy soul. 
Isaac Watts was born in England in 1674, a time in history that was deeply troubled and plagued with more than 100,000 people dying of the bubonic plague. And plague wasn't the only killer. In the decade prior to Watts' birth, 18,000 Scottish Covenanters or Presbyterians were killed for their faith based on an edict from the king. That anyone who was a nonconformist, anyone who did not adhere to the religion of the crown, would die. And Isaac Watts was born into a nonconformist home, a Protestant or an evangelical home where his father stood strong on the doctrine of justification. He was homeschooled in a family that loved him and a dad that led his children in the fight for a reformed faith. And this is a quote from his father. Something that the father told his children on a regular basis. And Watts, Isaac Watts could quote it in his old age. Worship God in his own way, with true worship and in a right manner, according to the rules of the gospel, and not according to the inventions or traditions of men. That was what this father poured in to his children. Mr. Watts did, want, did not want his children influenced by the creeping distortion in the church of the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this heavily influenced his son Isaac, driving Isaac Watts from a very young age to love Christ deeply. And he even showed very early signs of a hymn writer and a poet. There are two standout stories in this that are pretty interesting. The first one... He was five years old. He was caught giggling during family prayer because he saw a mouse climbing up the rope on the bell pool in the house. His father rebuked him. Why are you laughing during prayer, son? To which Isaac Watts, at five years old, replied, There was a mouse, for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say his prayers. <laughs> A few years later, Isaac Watts' mother found a pile of handwritten poems, probably stuffed under his bed, like I find junk stuffed under my kids' beds. And on these papers were written poem after poem after poem, deep poems on the, the theology of the Christian faith. And she said, whose are these? And Isaac said, oh, those are mine. She didn't believe him. So she sat him down at the kitchen table and said, well, I'm going to tell you what, right now, here's a pencil... Here's a piece of paper. I want you to write me a poem on the spot, on the fly. And Will, here's the poem. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth, so I've continued since my birth. Although Jehovah grace does daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me. Come, therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws relieve me. Wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart. Then search and try the corners of my heart, that I and all things may be fit to do service to thee and sing thy praises too. He was seven. And if you'll look down the left side, it says Isaac Watts. It's an acronym of his name. <laughs> Whew, seven years old. This is the guy who wrote Joy to the World. He grew to be a man of theological stature. 
but not a physical one. Isaac Watts wasn't even five feet tall. Very thin and very frail. He was so small and frail that when people met him, they actually did not believe that this was the powerful hymn writer, Isaac Watts. You know, he's standing about this tall. Well, there was this interesting exchange. His poems, he wrote a book of poetry and it became famous all throughout England. And one lady, Elizabeth Singer, read his book and immediately became attracted, thinking thoughts of marriage. So she arranged to meet him. After meeting him, he decided he was excited about this proposition of marriage. So he asked her to marry him, to which she refused. And said this, I only wish I could admire the container as much as I admire the jewel. <laughs> Terrible. So he was evidently a very homely looking person. He never did marry. And I don't know if it's because of his looks, but because Isaac Watts struggled with health. He also struggled with deep levels of depression. He was so sick at one time that a friend had him come and stay at his sanatorium. A sanatorium was a place where people would stay and get healthy. He was going to be there three weeks. 36 years later, he died there, never being healthy again. But for 36 years, writing hundreds upon hundreds of doctrinally rich, gospel-saturated hymns, which many are still sung in the church today. So Joy to the World, being one of the most famous and well-loved Christmas hymns of all time. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, also a very loved hymn by Isaac Watts. So he bases him on Psalm 98, which Bree read to us this morning, talking about singing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. And then in verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Making a joyful noise was prominent in Watts' thinking and writing, and Psalm 98 served as this powerful backdrop to, one of these, to this treasured hymn, Joy to the World. Watts knew the agonies of fighting for joy, and this psalm and this song are harmonious reminders for our sin-sick souls. The ultimate remedy for a life struggling to find joy found in the good news of Jesus. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus also used a very short parable to help us understand joy at an even deeper level. And these are some of my concluding thoughts. Matthew chapter 13 Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, 
He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Pursuing Christ means forsaking everything else because it's worth it. The greatest joy that we'll ever find in life is found in pursuing Christ above all else, forsaking all else and pursuing Him. So we learn that the kingdom of God, which is this understanding of, our, of the gospel in Jesus, is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a good trade-off. Having the omnipotent saving reign of Jesus Christ in our lives is so valuable that if we did lose everything in order to have it, then it is a joyful sacrifice. So the point here in Matthew, in Psalm 98, in the singing of hymns about joy, is that people who receive the kingdom treasure it more than anything else. You don't buy it, but you get it freely because you want it more than you want anything else. It's as if a poor child entered a toy store and the owner said to him, you can have the best and most expensive toy in the store if you want it more than anything else. In other words, there is a condition for having the kingdom, for having the kingdom on your side, the kingdom as our friend. But it's not wealth, it's not power, it's not intelligence, it's not good works. It's that we prize it. That we prize Jesus. That He is what we want. The point of selling everything in this parable is simply to reveal, where is my heart? Now, interestingly enough, Psalm 98 is full of this idea of the nations. And joy to the world is this hymn singing, not to the earth, but to the people. The unreached people groups of this world need the joy that the church has. And as we go to places like Gambia and as you go to your homes and your neighborhoods and your workplaces and you're surrounded by people who don't know Christ, it's a burden that we carry. John Piper says this, How shall we fulfill our mission to spread a passion for the supremacy of God? Spread. 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 That's why Jesus came. That's what he sent us to do. To go, make disciples, draw more and more people into the everlastingly all-satisfying experience of knowing and treasuring Christ. Share your joy. Don't keep it to yourself because hoarded joy rots. Shared joy increases. That's our mission as Waypoint Church. And one of the great burdens Christians is to find where God's at work and to share with those who need joy found in Christ alone. And this morning we get the blessing of 
kind of a tangible picture, so to speak, of that joy when we partake of communion. When we actually look at and hold and smell and taste from the bread and the cup, it's this just amazing, tangible, live picture of the sacrifice, of the rescue. And in this picture, we find joy. In death, we find joy. Because it's the death of Jesus that we see portrayed in these. And it's an amazing picture. It's an amazing moment for us as a church to gather together in unity and partake of this because Jesus says, remember. Remember what he's done. Remember the sacrifice that he made and find joy to all the world in it. So as we are preparing our hearts right now, think on Christ. Think on his sacrifice. Know that the life struggles that you have, you're not alone. Even Christ suffered. Let's pray as we wait on the Lord to speak to us.